Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Green Tea Podcast. My name is Nick Sibiriakov. And hi, I'm Chloe Rains. And today we are welcoming a special guest on the podcast by the name of Dr. Ashley Shaw. Would you like to please introduce yourself? Absolutely. Thanks for having me. So I am Dr. Ashley Shaw. I am a visiting assistant professor at Bowdoin College, and I am also a licensed clinical psychologist who also um, sees patients with anxiety and related disorders. So what is anxiety? From a clinician's perspective, do you want to just give a quick definition so that the audience is educated in this sense? Absolutely. So anxiety is an emotion that all of us have. So not just people with anxiety disorders have anxiety. Um, so anxiety tends to be emotion, an emotion about um, something going wrong in the future. It could be in the near future. It could be in the far off future. And it tends to motivate an action of avoidance. So people with anxiety tend to sort of avoid the thing they're anxious about. And sometimes anxiety can be helpful or adaptive, and other times it can be less helpful or less adaptive. That is really interesting. We are wondering, you know, with the COVID pandemic and everything that's going on, obviously very turbulent times, we wanted to know if you've seen trends and or changes in anxiety recently um, due to the pandemic, climate change, specifically cases exacerbated by fear of climate change. Absolutely. So I can absolutely say that anxiety, I would say, has increased over the past five years, especially with the pandemic. There's some pretty good research out there, for example, by Varma. There's an article, I think it's 2021, that speaks about sort of the increased rates of anxiety and stress in adults across the lifespan. In terms of exacerbations in anxiety due to climate change specifically, I can't really speak to that. I'm not sure. I can't say I've seen an increase in my practice due to that specifically, although I would say that it's been like one of many worries sometimes in kids or adults with generalized anxiety disorder. You shared an article with us titled From Anger to Action, The Differential Impact of Eco-Anxiety, Eco-Depression, and Eco-Anger on Climate Action and Well-Being by Stanley et al., which was super interesting. And the study found that eco-anger leads to better mental health outcomes. Why do you believe that this is? Yeah, I'm so glad you all t took a look at that because I thought it was really interesting as well. So a lot of times people are think anger is one of the most intolerable and unhelpful emotions. Mm -hmm. But in fact, anger is something that really motivates people when things are unfair. And so anger can lead people to advocate for themselves, stand up for unfairness. So you can see how anger, not just across climate change, but across all sorts of injustices, could lead to more action, especially collective collective action, if multiple people are angry about something. It can be a really motivating emotion. Sometimes I think about um, when I'm angry and I go to the gym, it's like a very productive workout. <laughs> so yeah, it, it, like there actually is like kind of a positive side to anger, which I think was a cool piece in that article. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I, on the workout thing, 100%. Also like just to throw in there, last semester, I was really lucky to take a class on social protest taught by Professor Laura Henry. And it was was examining social movements and like for example with the AIDS crisis and things that are going on they reframed they were able to reframe as anger and that motivated people to see 
hey, here's injustices that are going on instead of looking inward and focusing negatively. So it's interesting how that also kind of applies here with climate change. Mm-hmm. As a clinician, I'm, I'm actually really interested in on these emotions that are often titled as negative emotions. Mm-hmm. In your practice, do you often incorporate strategies to like harness these negative emotions into something positive? Absolutely. So it's really important to teach patients. Sometimes your emotions are cueing you into something that's helpful. And how can we, how can you find the kernel of truths in each emotion? And how can you kind of express that if it's a valid emotion that somebody else needs to hear, right? So, Mm -hmm. you know, and what's interesting is sometimes people become depressed because they don't express their anger and they turn that anger inward, sort of like what you were saying, Chloe. But I think it's really important across the broad spectrum of emotions to be able to identify those things, see the truth and value that they have and express them as well. So we're also wondering, you know, from this article, it said that those who were eco-depressed, so we have eco-anger as a motivator, and then those who are eco-depressed were more likely to join climate action programs rather than those who are eco-anxious. Do you have like a theory for why you think this is or... Yeah, I mean, that was that was a bit surprising. And I think they talk about in the article how it sort of surprised them as well. I think that in terms of anxiety, part of it is about really avoiding the thing that's spurring your anxiety. So you can imagine if somebody is feeling anxious about climate change, they might not want to watch a documentary about mm-hmm. the Arctic, you know, decreasing in, you know, frozen things, you know, mm-hmm. that might be distressing for them. They might avoid recycling. They might avoid going to protests because those things in itself are going to potentially increase their anxiety in their minds. Mm. Whereas, you know, one thing that's really interesting about depression and sadness is it can both be activating or deactivating. So for example, when you're feeling sad, sometimes you can, it can be activating in that you're crying. You're like really distressed. And other times you might feel nothing. Like you might be very withdrawn. So we might think that people might be less likely to participate in protests because they would be withdrawn, but like there's actually like multiple sides to depression and sadness. That's super interesting. I never really thought about that. So speaking about anxiety and depression, do you believe that these disorders are brought on specifically by climate change or are there possible like other factors that are contributing to these feelings of anxiety, like eco-anxiety and eco-depression? So I don't know if there's been any work looking at climate change as mm-hmm. like a specific risk factor for mm-hmm. increased and, in, you know, mental health conditions. But obviously climate change and COVID-19 are closely tied together. Mm-hmm. And COVID-19 did lead to an increase in these things. So if you think about it kind of in that broader way, potentially, I can say, you know, across practicing with kids, adolescents and adults, it's not a huge presenting problem in my anxious clients. Like it's not something that's discussed um, 
a lot, but I also wonder if it also depends on where you're living, right? So if mm. you're living in an environment that's more affected by climate change, that it's more <laughs> visible or more obvious or like you're being displaced, I could imagine that would make you more potentially more vulnerable. You know, so for example, what's interesting is I, I came from Miami, which recently South Florida experienced a hurricane. However, somehow I went 10 years living in Miami where we had a couple hurricanes, but none of them were made a huge impact on people. But I think once one of those things hits, like once a natural disaster hits in your environment, it is going to increase um, your stress levels. And one thing that's particularly interesting, though, is there's been some research by my previous men- mentor, Jonathan Comer, where he found that it actually doesn't matter if you're around the natural disaster or if you're hearing about it on the news from afar. So they basically looked at after a hurricane post-traumatic stress symptoms in kids and adolescents and found that it was really about the amount of news you were watching, less so how close you were to the disaster itself. Mm. So even like kids and adolescents in California may have been affected by hurricane news coverage in Texas and Florida, for example. Okay, that's that's really crazy. And it makes sense, too, because I feel like so many people are like, you know, I don't want to take in too much news because you have to balance for your mental health. Like, what amount of information can you be taking in all the time and learning about all these issues? And I'm from Texas, so I think it's funny because I wasn't even here, but there was a really bad tornado a few years ago in my hometown, you know, in Dallas, and it just, it was devastating, awful. And, and I was lucky that I wasn't there at the time, but at the same time, it's like you have loved ones and you have everything and you see what's going on at the news. So even though I'm 2,000 miles away, I like 100% second that. Like it is, it is also the news. You don't even have to be there to be experiencing it in some way. Would you recommend then distancing yourself from looking at all of these adverse news stories that are happening all over the all over the internet and our media? Absolutely. And I'll tell you that's what I do. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, I remember earlier in the pandemic, I was like really just like wrapped up in the news, watching a lot of things all the time. And then I sort of switched to a model where I read like a short um, news email every morning while I'm eating my breakfast. I don't get any alerts to my phone about news. I don't watch the news. I also learn news through Saturday Night Live. (laughs) Um, I watch their like weekend update and that kind of helps me like take it in a more like light, positive kind of spin on things, being totally. able to kind of make fun of things going on. So I think like it, it's really important to kind of like not overwhelm yourself because there's just so much going on. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Totally. It's like the phenomenon of doom scrolling. Like that's what they call it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. Definitely fallen prey to that a few mm-hmm. times. So yeah. according to the Washington Post, quote, the American Psychiatric Association does not currently require mental health professionals to have training on climate-related issues, but a group of instructors will soon launch a climate psychology certificate, end quote. So do you believe that the process of treating anxiety related to climate change may be different from anxiety that stems from other sources? Like, is there comorbidity between climate change anxiety, other sources? How would you face these issues? Absolutely. So I... I 
I picture it being pretty similar as other worries that people might have. When I think about what DSM-5 disorders it would be most likely to map onto, I would probably think generalized anxiety disorder um, and perhaps specific phobia of thunderstorms, which is like pretty common, mm-hmm. like pretty common in kids. One thing that I think is really interesting about climate change is it's both near and far. So there are some things about it that are like right in front of us that we're dealing with right now. But then some of the more like distressing aspects of climate change are in the distant. It's like, when is this going to happen? How long till we run out of gas? And, you know, how long till we can't have these homes on the water anymore? So I think because it's like really uncertain, that is something that also goes along with generalized anxiety disorder. So one of the risk factors for generalized anxiety disorder is called intolerance of uncertainty. So it's very hard dealing with like ambiguous situations. And in some ways, there's nothing more uncertain than like climate change because we can guess when bad things are going to happen. But we don't really know. And so I think that that probably is pretty intolerable for people with anxiety. But I would guess it, you know, treatment of it would map on to treatment for generalized anxiety disorder pretty well. Mm -hmm. So how do you go about helping patients who have generalized anxiety disorder with their intolerance of the uncertain? Are there any like specific techniques that you help them do that you were willing to share? Yeah, absolutely. So a couple different things. One of them is exposure therapy. So we would develop a hierarchy of different uncertain situations and have them gradually face those particular situations. If it's somebody that is, for example, really scared of climate change, so scared that they won't even like watch something about it, I might actually have them watch the news. And we would also have them practice mindfulness because we would have them practice sitting with the uncertainty and anxiety around climate change rather than trying to distract themselves or talk about something else or change the subject. We wanted to know, do you believe that the counseling world is giving more acknowledgement towards the psychological and physical toll of climate change on young people? I don't know the answer to that. That's a great question. You know, I haven't heard a lot about it, but what I can say um, I think is quite related. So over the past three years, I think the APA as well as, you know, many other organizations within psychology have been paying a lot more attention to like social injustice and racial injustice. And we know that climate change disproportionately affects um, people from racial and ethnic minorities. And so I think hopefully the work that you know, people are doing in psychology to address racial injustice will eventually kind of spill over into climate injustice as well. So I don't think it's been really at the forefront of conversations. So that's why I was really excited to this conversation, because this yeah. is my first time actually chatting about this topic. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And and you mentioned, you know, it's insane how in uh, like we are just now addressing the fact that Obviously, this is going to be affecting POC people more. You can't address climate change and these issues without addressing displaced people, with immigration, with everything going on. It is such a holistic view. Um, how is this affecting queer people differently? So, yeah, it's, there's a lot of research to be done. There's a lot to learn, definitely. Do you have any tips and tricks to keep yourself mentally healthy that you would like to share? 
in general or related to climate change? Both would be great. (laughs) (laughs) Sure. So a couple of things, let's see, a couple of things that I was told when I started graduate school, these are actually two of my favorite messages, especially for students like you who are probably very bright, like work really hard. One of them is about treating school like a job. So, um, you know, jobs are nine to five. How can you decide what hours you want to contribute to school and studying and sort of stick to those hours, right? So rather than studying in the middle of the night at like 3 a.m., can you decide your hours and sort of stick to those things? So you're actually like building in leisure time. And the second thing that I was told when I started graduate school was you are very competent. People are going to ask you to do more and more things the more competent you are. It's okay to say no. Say no, you know, whenever you need to. So for, you know, for me, like those were kind of two things that were incredibly helpful to understand and I think helped me a lot. Totally. Sweet. Thank you for sharing. Those are really good pieces of advice. Lastly, we always like to end our podcast by asking our guests what sustainability means to them. And specifically for you, what do you believe sustainability looks like from the perspective of a clinician? That's a great question and so interesting that you brought that up because sustainability is a term in clinical psychology, but I think it means something pretty different than what it means from an environmental science perspective. So um, within clinical psychology, the idea of sustainability is whether our evidence-based practices are sustainable. So for example, if a treatment is made at a, in a university setting, you know, with graduate students and, you know, patients who present to an ur- urban university setting, is that treatment something that could be sustainably implemented in the community? So in community mental health centers, perhaps with clinicians that, you know, don't, you know, have five to six years of a doctoral degree but have a master's degree, like with more diverse patients, how do we make things that are evidence-based? So based in science, we know they work. How can we make them sustainable more broadly outside of like the university and like researchers setting? Wow. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. That is about it. Well, thank you so much for coming in. Everybody, this is Dr. Ashley Shaw. Thank you for tuning into the Green Tea Podcast. My name is Nick Sibirikov. And once again, this is Chloe Rains. And I hope you all enjoyed listening to this wonderful podcast on eco-anxiety. Thank you to Dr. Ashley Shaw for your time. We really appreciated what you had to say. And I hope you guys enjoy your day. Take care.